Welcome to Joiners, the podcast with Tim and Danny, where we explore the world of hospitality by chatting with its most colorful characters. You nailed it, Danny. Boom. Well done. Enough times. <laughs> now, Danny, let me ask you. Uh, I'm on social media, Instagram. <laughs> Occasionally you <laughs> and are, I, yeah. I, I'm one of your followers. I don't know if you follow me back, but I noticed in one of your stories, you had an interesting uh, photo of a uh, friend of the pod and former guest, Huge Galdones, looking very triumphant on the field of... Uh, well, Wrigley Field. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, the one and only. Well, yeah. What's going on? Um, a couple months ago, Huge was like, um, I'm going to be throwing out the first pitch at Wrigley on uh, on July 17th. And I was like, what? I was like, how did that come to be? And long story, um, it was basically like through a charity auction uh, affiliated with this kid's school. Oh. And he's, anyways, I was like, yeah, I'll be there. Um so basically a bunch of us in, uh, in Huge's community got together, uh, in the same, you know, section of the ballpark and, uh, we got to watch Huge throughout the first pitch and, you know, was it a strike? Yeah. Leading into it, Huge, the rumor was that Huge was going to throw a knuckleball, which everyone thought was ill-advised because like your art, there's so much pressure. It's ballsy. It's so But ballsy. if anyone can do it, I think it's Huge. <laughs> yeah. There's nothing this guy can't do. That's right. Yeah. Scientist, so, photographer, we also magician. Did, that's right. We didn't know if he would actually do it, if he was just saying it, but if at the last second he would chicken out and just throw like a normal pitch. Um, but yeah, he threw the knuckleball. It was, it was perfect. Uh, got over the plate and, uh, you know, we're impressed now the, the next bet has become, can huge throw over 75 miles per hour because oh, you have huge... six flags to test it. <laughs> yeah. Cause huge <laughs> thinks that he's still huge thinks he can throw in the eighties still. Um, so and, he, that's that implies he could at one point. Yes, was he, he a could. baseball player? I think he played some college baseball Oh, um, well, in yeah. Canada. I remember doing like the fast pitch when I was in Little League, like at the end of the year yeah. celebration. What was your high number? I was up there in the league. I was one of the bigger kids, but I, but I was like, I think it was like around 60. Yeah, that's, I, I was, was just going to say, I, I don't think like, I ever like cracked 60 on that. I think thing. it was like 11. <laughs> so I would think if Huge could hit 80. Yeah. yeah so anyways, another man. friend was at the stadium as this bet was being talked about, just buying the speed radar gun from Amazon. <laughs> oh, they have it at the ballpark, actually. Oh, dude, I know is they it accurate? The Sox Park. Um, I have no idea how yeah. accurate it is. Have you ever done that with your tennis serve? No, I, I also oh. don't serve that fast. But I know. I've noticed that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, say, I reserve that for real matches. Yeah. Well, speaking of serving, yeah. you know who serves a mean cocktail? And who has the Served Up podcast. That's right. Who is it, Danny? It's this week's guest, Bridget Albert. Um, I don't know why I just stumbled over her name. Bridget Albert. Um, she is a mentor to many of us, uh, an inspiration, a powerhouse. And, uh, it was, it was an honor to chat with her about her, you know, her origin story. There were a lot of things that I didn't know, um, that were news to me. So I'm guessing those same tidbits will be news to you as well. Yeah. She's been a champion of the cocktail since this resurgence of craft cocktails. She's been there since the beginning and I guess responsible for a lot of its success and, yeah, since and education. It was, uh, the crap of the cocktail, as she said, <laughs> yeah, before it was the craft. craft. <laughs> yeah, before it was the craft of the cocktail. Yeah. Um, so yeah, without further ado, please enjoy our conversation with Bridget Albert. Bridget, welcome to the studio. 
I'm so happy to be here, y'all. This is great. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, just let me start with, without Bridget, I would not have the career that I have. I would not have the knowledge that I have. Bridget has uh, shepherded tons of us um, through the ranks of the spirits world. Um, By us, you mean? Bar people. Bar people. Bar people, spirits, industry professionals. Um, Bridget, did you start? Okay, so no, your, your mentor. On. First of all, yep. you didn't put any tissues on this table. <laughs> I am holding back. Thank you for those words. No, we do yeah. have wet wipes. Yeah, we have wet wipes. The yeah, yeah. Headphones with. <laughs> I might need a wet wipe. Yeah. We'll see. Um, so your career started in Vegas, correct? Or mm, even before that, I guess. Yeah, here. like well before okay, that. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. Do you want to maybe talk about how you grew up in the industry? Yeah. Do I? I don't, I don't have to mention years, do I? No, no, no. Okay, cool. Because I'm going on 32 years in the industry, which wow. is really. Wow. Can I swear or no? Yeah, yeah. Of I, I do swear a lot. I'm gonna try not to. <laughs> we'll encourage it. But um, yeah. Tim's so I grew up. To it, though. <laughs> <laughs> I grew up with a lot of stories about the industry from my grandmother, who uh, was lived above a bar in Coal City, Illinois. And if you've ever been to Coal City, we're related. Hmm, it's okay. Southern <laughs> Illinois. It's probably about an hour and 45 minutes from Chicago. And my family on that side of the family, my mother's side, were Italian immigrants. And they really needed to make some money. And they were actually dressmakers in Turin, Italy. And the men in my family weren't worth shit. And so um, when they came over, it really was the women that had to pull up, you know, by their bootstraps and figure out how to make some money. And they knew opening a tavern would be the way to go because Coal City has its name because it's a coal mining town. Mm -hmm. And if anyone needs a drink, it's a coal miner. And so it really was a place for the coal miners to escape, right, from the grind. Um, I actually own some of the spittoons and lanterns, and I have a beautiful picture of my great-great-great-aunt Tilly who ran the bar, and she was a dressmaker, so she made a pattern. So she had a, um, a uniform that she wore, you know, every day. And I guess that she was tough as nails. Obviously, this bar was open well before I was born, guys. I wasn't born in the 1800s, 19, you know, not that old. <laughs> what, what feeling year, it some days. What but, year are we talking when they opened the tavern? Um, they opened the tavern in the very late 1800s. Okay. Very so. late 1800s. We don't, through my family lineage, lineage, whatever, we don't have that exact day. But they did close um, right before uh, Prohibition ended. Okay. And then it became a men's um, clothing store, and then it burnt down. So I, I have photos. I have so many of the stories that Grandma Rosella um, shared with me. And I'll never forget when Jill DeGroff, um, for those of you who might know Dale DeGroff, called me. And this was in the early 2000s. And she said, will your Grandma Rosella agree to be uh, featured in the Museum of the American Cocktail with some of her stories, you know, really being at that bar? I would have called her a bar back. Yeah. Mm -hmm. She was little. Okay. And I, I asked Rosella, I called her and she goes, I'm no rat and hung up on me. <laughs> and, I was like, and then I had called Jill DeGroff and I'm like, um, so she said no. <laughs> no rat. Because she grew up in a time, you know, where she saw a lot of um, nasty stuff. And you have yeah. to understand, especially before prohibition, 
uh, or during Prohibition and even a little bit after that a lot of the, the craziness that was happening in Chicago really bled out well through southern Illinois, right? Hmm. In towns like Coal City and towns like Tonica, which I won't even tell you about because I'm still here. I'll tell you, I'll write you a letter and you could open it. It'll be sealed <laughs> upon my death because there's oh a lot of gosh. shit in that wow. area. What, are we talking like organized crime? Yes. Are we talking specifically That's smuggling? All I'm say. Okay. Stuff. Yeah. yeah. Stuff that happened. <clears throat> Google it. It's <laughs> fascinating. And, and what are the keywords yeah. we're searching? <laughs> <laughs> well, won't say racketeering, but yeah. So, but yeah, so, um, but she grew up in such a time where it was every man for and woman for themselves. And what was so unique was that, you know, my great grandmother, great, great, great Aunt Tilly were all behind the bar at a time when women just weren't. You were in a bar if you were a prostitute, you were a woman of ill repute. And so they had to be super tough. You know, they had to be really tough and they created a space where everyone was welcome and they didn't, they put up with no nonsense. And so if a woman of the evening came in, she was led right out. And my grandmother had the best stories because she um, would lay down on her belly because they lived above the bar and she'd look through a wooden knot that was in the floor when she was little to see what was going on. And she would tell stories of my great grandmother running out to the ice truck because ice was really like diamonds back in those days. Not everybody could afford to have ice. Um, It really, truly was a luxury. And she'd run out with her ice pick and telling everybody, get out of her way. She was so excited to have the ice, right? And during those days, what my grandmother would tell me when they would have ice, which wasn't all the time, is grandmother would chisel it. And it wasn't so fancy. Like you see the mixologist today, you know, and the the fancy shit that we have to make Mm -hmm. cocktails, right? Um, She was just chiseling it and and putting a glass in. But um, where I learned the term seasoned, was from my grandmother from this particular story because uh, patrons would come in and say, don't touch my ice, it's seasoned. Put my whiskey over that ice because it was so dense and, and so, you know, wonderful. It would take so long to melt. But that yeah. was definitely oh. a thing, you know, back in the day. And I would just have loved to see my great-grandmother, like crazy lady with her, Italian lady with her <laughs> ice pick, like get out of my way, let me get that ice and bring it into the bar. Seasoned ice. Yeah. So back then, <clears throat> ice was coming down from the north in gigantic chunks. Yeah. And then wh- yep. how was that stored? I don't know. Huh. No one's alive to answer that yeah. question. <laughs> and I don't think it may, it probably wasn't. Yeah. It pro- honest to God, it wasn't it's like, like they had like a in fridge the in the back. Yeah, it was probably in a shade and space. under a tree, yeah, and, yeah. and it was probably like a big deal. Is yeah, what I'm yeah. thinking, and that's what my mother thinks as well. But yeah, I re- hmm. when you drive out west and you go to like wall drug it was they, yeah they were like famous for their ice water yep same reason yep. yeah same reason yeah mm. so it's been in my blood um hospitality is all that i know and what i love to do um like i said i've been in the industry this year by 32 years so it's a long time and i've seen a lot and, and i'm really proud of where our industry is today yeah and when did you start working for real in the industry for real yo yeah for so real, yeah. <laughs> i can tell you um i don't remember the year early 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 90s um i started out as a cocktail server at the empress river casino i am not meant to wear heels folks mm-hmm. or what is it? Nylons. And back then you'd go to Walgreens and you'd buy them and they're like in an egg, yeah. you know, and they'd run and they were so stupid. And, <laughs> but I knew these women were making a lot of money and we had to wear these pink, shiny 
vests and like these little hot pants and like fish nuts and I hated everything. Oh, and a pillbox hat. Come wow. on. <laughs> that you had to like and I had big hair, like I did. And and I had to like, you know, get buy bobby pins and all this stuff and it was horrible. And I it was not coordinated and I did not have the ability to flirt with ugly old men to make a buck. And yeah. that's what you had to do at this casino, right? So um I remember one day a bartender got sick and and they said, Bridget, can you jump behind the bar? I don't know how to make anything. I know how to open a beer. But I'm like, does that mean I could put pants on and my tennis shoes? I'm like, yep. So I went down to wardrobe, changed my clothes, and I never left. Wow. And did you fall in love with it right away? I did. I fell in love with just the freedom of really having that space to create something, to create an experience for people, to create memories, to wear flat shoes. Like all of it was just so attractive to me and not even connecting back to all the stories that I heard, you know, from my grandmother. It just felt like home. It really felt like home. You know, I went to college for five seconds. Guys, I was not a good student at all, at all. I ditched more than I was in class which you is know? ironic considering you created a cocktail curriculum and a spirits education it's so weird right yeah. it's like if you would have told me in high school like be hey you know what you are going to be an educator i would have turned up my metallica smoked my joint and laughed at you like there's not happening it's just <laughs> I think not it makes sense it's though not happening. i think if you weren't a good student you might know how to reach those people mm-hmm. or how to communicate in a way that it's going to be receptive received well yeah yeah for sure for so sure. where was empress empress origasino was in joliet um illinois and i worked there for a few years you know i was um i was a cocktail server for a short time i was bartending i actually started there parking cars and valet when i was like a kid and it's so funny because um i couldn't drive stick <laughs> and so the guys whenever there would be like a car that would pull up that was stick i would come out and like oh let me take your keys sir because i was like the cute young thing and then the guys would go park it and then same thing and we'd make more tips i mean i've been hustling since i was born i swear so this was so joliet so it was a riverboat casino so it was a riverboat casino and it was on water at that time it was like a big paddle boat and was it um, stationary or would you guys no no we actually cruised oh cool yep we cruised down the river and um i'd sit back on the back deck for my breaks and smoke my cigarettes which i don't do anymore but did it um, legally have to be floating it did those are i mean this out far we're going back yeah like it legally had to be on water yeah. and then eventually they made barges and then they just i think that they can be on land now yeah yeah when chicago when's chicago's casino opening i have no idea it you, seems like it's know. been happening for a while it got yeah. approved i know that yeah i don't know when it's actually opening it's the only place i ever got 86 from you know that what that place yeah what'd you do um can I tell this story? Yeah, of course. Oh, yeah. So I was, um, there <laughs> was some, there was a pit boss I didn't like, you know, too much. And he always gave like the girls like such a hard time, the cocktail servers. And I was just over it. And I knew I was putting in my two weeks and, um, I, we had these, um, oh, what were they on the walls where you could, um, you know, pick it up and you could you know, connect with the different pits, the different like areas, a like a walkie like talkie, intercom, intercom system okay. and walkie talkies and stuff. But there were all these buttons for stuff. And I pressed the wrong button and I said some really nasty things about this guy. And it went on the whole, it turned off all the music in the entire casino <laughs> oh and just heard me 
saying it very calmly in like the voice that I have now, like you're a fucking creep and um, watch your back and um, <laughs> no one likes you. Hopefully you'll jump off this ship and drown <laughs> and just all these disgusting things. So I'm like, hey, you know, it's my, but I thought it was just going to go right to him and his little walkie talkie, but it didn't. <laughs> oh and so security showed up and, and I did try, like, of course I tried to get back on, like when I quit and that, no. That's mm. epic. That, that's <laughs> me. So but I, I won't, I don't recommend that. That's the only time I did that oh my in God. my life. Besides when I was like 13 and I was working at Gomer's Garage in Shorewood, Illinois, and I had my best friend Tammy Giselle quit my job for me <laughs> on the phone because I was a chicken. <laughs> so when you put in your two weeks, did you have plans to move west at that point? Yes. So No. No, no, no. This is before that. Okay. And so I had met, I was dating um, my husband, Jamie Albert, and he got a job in St. Louis, Missouri at Harris Casino. And he said, why don't you move with me? And I'm like, sure. I don't have a job. Yeah, let's go. And so we moved to St. Louis, Missouri, where I then became a flight attendant for TWA. Wow. I didn't know know that. These are things I don't share with yeah, I never knew. What was this. that experience like? Um, it was terrible. Yeah. So <laughs> it was terrible. Um, my plane actually caught on fire and oh I rescued people. Whoa. True story, uh, which is why I have a very uh, severe um, fear, of fear of flying still today. I still have massive. But you've traveled around the world a Because I won't let it stop me. Yeah. You know, I don't let it stop me, but um, but it was pretty awful. But what I learned there was really. Um, Wait, can you tell that story? If it's not... Yeah, I can tell you a story. So I was leaving um, St. Louis, and we were headed to Birmingham. We were on, I think it was a J-12. It was a very small um, jet. And I was um, the only flight attendant on board to put in perspective. I probably sat like 30 people, really small. Yeah. And um, I remember that we were taxiing out um, to the runway and we just took off and it was during winter time so with that said a lot of times you would see condensation coming off of the actual um, engine and people would think it was on fire because it looked like smoke you know Mm -hmm. and I remember we'd just taken off and a gal had dinged her dinged her little thing her little alert thing and I walked up and I said is everything okay she was like the left engine's on fire and I look out I'm like no you know it's condensation I looked out again I'm like holy shit it's on fire (laughs) so um, the captains didn't get an alert Um, so I had to call up front and tell them we have a major problem the plane's on fire and it did fill up with smoke and it was very scary and um, we were able to land the plane and I was able to get everyone out and um, I remember having to unlock the doors for the pilots to come out, you know, because they oh, yeah. um, didn't come out right away. Because I think we were just all like, what yeah, is happening out. here? Yeah. But got everybody out. And, and um, I guess that was my last day at TWA. <laughs> <laughs> no, I had one more flight after that. Well, I had one legit. more flight after that. And then I was like, mm, not for me, guys. It's impressive that you've made it on another flight. But I learned so much about hospitality being yeah. um, a flight attendant. You're put in so many situations caring for others, you know, really creating that safe space, literally. But also, you know, maneuvering drinks on a 
little cart that just sucks to push, you know, and and um, how to manage people's expectations and complaints and, you know, just all of it, right? Yeah. And so that was a great teaching moment for me. But at the same time, I was also bartending at Growler's Pub, which had a focus on single malt and they made their own beer. Hmm. And so I was able to learn. That was really my first like aha moment with spirits. The first time I was educated on any sort of a category. Hmm. And it was really exciting to me. I had three jobs at that time because flight attendants, they didn't make anything. And so when I wasn't working there, I had a part-time job at Crowlers and then a nightclub also, which I worked like one day a week, maybe twice a month, but you made a lot of money. And that was so much fun. <laughs> oh my God, it was so much fun. Were you at the nightclub? Yes, okay. I loved that. I loved it to pieces because you could dance behind the bar and nobody cared and it was just good music. Night went by fast and you made bundles and bundles of money. It was yeah. just great. And so I feel like I've had experience in um, working in just about every type of bar that there is. And you have to understand back that back then we didn't have Google. We didn't have, I mean, I didn't have a shoe phone. I didn't have a big ass cell phone thing. Um, and really, if you want to learn about cocktails, you grabbed a Mr. Boston. Yeah. Remember those books? Yeah, you oh, Mr. Boston. It's a cocktail guide. Yeah, you grabbed Mr. Boston's cocktail guide and you read that. It was just classics. Like, it was what, just a what, thorough guide of... Yeah. Cocktails. Common cocktails, basically. Yeah. So, Nothing yeah, like, fancy. What was know? it back then? Gin and tonic? No, yeah, there was, was, well. Or like old-fashioned. Yeah. yeah. all sorts of stuff like and that. And also like red-headed sluts. Like, yeah. you know, we were making oh, okay. like all the crazy blowjobs yeah. shots yeah, and all this Island. kind of stuff. And Long Islands were yeah. huge. And people were drinking their Jack and Cokes. And it was uh, a simpler time. It was really like the crap of the cocktail, right? Versus right. the craft of the cocktail that <laughs> yeah. Dale, this is before Dale, we'll or maybe that. at the same yeah. time, like that Dale the was, you know, coming up with his stuff. It was definitely the crap. Of the, so you had to learn the hard way. You had to learn the hard way because yeah. guess what? There was nothing fresh. Yeah. No, nothing. Yeah. Nothing. That Everything came out imagine. of a gun, you know, it was yeah. gross. But, but what rings true today as it had all the way back to when my family had their bar was hospitality. You know, I always say I would rather sit with a bartender that's kind and I don't care if they serve me um, a shitty cocktail. I right. don't. Mm -hmm. As long as you're nice to me and pleasant, you don't have to hover over me either, but just acknowledge that I'm there, right? And just give me that really nice service. I would rather do that than go to a very swanky place with all the bells and whistles that are snobby. Right. I agree. 100%. Yeah. Tim doesn't. But. Not at all. <laughs> Not at all. You're, you're, no, I, I wonder about that when I'm bougie. at a bar. Yeah, like yeah. if I, I feel uncomfortable going out to eat by myself, mm -hmm. but I don't feel as uncomfortable going to a bar because I feel like I can sit at the bar and talk to the bartender. But then I'm always like, am I annoying this person? But if it's slow, I kind of assume they don't mind the company. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's the job. Yeah. Yeah. And, to uh, pretend to like you, Tim. <laughs> to pretend yeah. to like you. To pretend yeah. to care. Yeah. Yeah. You know. No, I think that, yeah. I mean, it is maybe a little bit of a tangent. But, you know, I know people who, like, they check, like, the tips that are left behind, like, in the moment when the person's there. And I'm like, I never, I never, ever even thought about it. Like, no. someone signed a thing, I'd put it in the cup. I'd never look at it. It never affected me. Yeah. I was just, like, there to do my job to the best of my ability, give the best hospitality. 100%. And there's some people that, like, you know, aren't, uh, I guess, as genuine yeah. um, and are doing it, like, in a fake way. And I was right. obviously just joking when we, when we were talking about being fake about it. So I think that's, like, the whole 
point and which emanates from Bridget is like the genuine hospitality and like that kind Thank of you. warmth and care. I think that's, you know, you can only get that from five generations of hospitality. Right. Oh man, I'm tired <laughs> <laughs> so much. This episode is brought to you by Scofflaw Old Tom Gin, a tasty, versatile spirit. Created in Chicago in 2012, the product was born out of a need for a bespoke iteration of the Old Tom style, which is the slightly sweeter predecessor to London Dry. Scofflaw Old Tom Gin carries classic notes of orange peel, juniper, and coriander while balancing on a subtle floral edge thanks to the addition of osmanthus blossoms. Its elevated proof is suitable in cocktails or unadorned. Scofflaw Old Tom Gin, complete your bar. Okay, so when you started learning about spirits in earnest, was like single malts and and, and about like malts the beer, okay, and just, beer, okay. really, that was it. And then serving a lot of Long Islands and you know and that kind of stuff. And then, um, so we were living in St. Louis, Missouri, at all these jobs, you know, trying to. I'm, I mean, so many days of just eating. Like, thank God for Taco Bell. Yeah. Uh, that's all I can say. It mm-hmm. fed me. <laughs> my <laughs> husband for a long time because it's so cheap yeah but um what was your husband doing at the time my husband was a pit boss at harris casino around st louis missouri so, okay and did yeah. you guys where'd you meet him did you meet at the other oh, riverboat at, that's uh, for another Empress? podcast okay. <laughs> so for bridget a, part two it's okay. for, yeah i can tell you no, i did meet him at the Empress River casino however i do have a photograph of mr and albert and i he is four years old and I'm three years old, and we're eating um, sloppy joes. Do you know what those are? Yeah, yeah, of course. Family party. Yeah. We're not related. But there's a, <laughs> there's a very long story there. But yeah. Wow, so you met when you were four and three. Yeah, and then re met wow. years later. Wow, and then that's we had to ask crazy. our families, like, are we related? Because there was all this history we did not know about. Okay. <laughs> and we will uh, reveal the test results in yeah, the yes. next episode, episode too. Yeah, sure. yeah. <laughs> After 25 years of marriage, I just hope he's not my cousin. Oh so, my God. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so Jamie went on a trip to Las Vegas because he had a buddy that lived there. And he called me. I'll never forget in the middle of the night. He's like, B, I won $1,000. We made it. Let's move to Vegas. I'm like, oh my God, it was like a million dollars, right? I'm like, let's go. So we, um, and this is right after we had gotten married. And I'm like, okay, we're going to Vegas. Told our parents who were not thrilled, you know, put our dog, everything we could fit into our truck and just went. We had no place to live, no place to work, like so dumb. Um, But it worked out. You know, we pulled into a place. It was clean, looked kind of safe. It had carpeting in the bathroom, whatever. We'll stay, (laughs) you know, really, truly. And my first job in Las Vegas was at the Country Star, for any of your listeners that know me on any level, know I listen to like 80s hairband music, Zeppelin, classic rock. So working in a country environment every day with that music over and over, like I was not happy. It was just <laughs> not, you know, Are we let me out- get you barbecue, sir. Like it was just... <laughs> Not my... Is this like outlaw country or is this like pop no, country? No, like pop. Okay. Whatever the country yeah. music was in... What year was that? 19... Garth Oh, Brooks. no. I even even know what year that was. 2004 or something. No, yeah. no. It wouldn't have been 2004. It had been 1998. Okay. So whatever was popular back then was yeah. like what they were playing. So it was awful uh, for me. And uh, they wound up closing and I applied to be a bartender at the Bellagio. 
and Jamie was dealing at the Excalibur at that time, and um, I got the job. Wow. And is that, that's where you met Francesco LaFranconi? Yeah, so I met Francesco LaFranconi, I met Tony Abaganum, Dale DeGroff, you know, um, Booker No, yeah, Tito, so- like all of the... N- all the guys, right? I met everybody. It was so cool because there were no brand ambassadors at this time. Yeah. There was no like tales of the cocktail at this time. There was, um, you, you bartended. Yeah. That was it. And so how, so when you, okay, so you start working at the Bellagio, what's that process like for bartenders versus your previous gigs? Yeah. So it was, it was wild, right? Cause I had been making shots and beers and everything off of like a gun. And now we're doing all fresh juices, um, quality spirits, technique, using a jig, like all the stuff I never did. It was like SeaWorld if you came up to see me like before that at the bar. You were definitely like, you know, whatever. There was just like, <laughs> yeah, hey, I was spilling on you. It was just like, no, no, it was free pouring heaven. You were definitely, you know, whatever. So, but um, in Vegas, it, we were really held to this standard that hadn't been really done before in the hotel world or really anywhere at that time. And you have to understand that 99.9% of my customers were comped. Mm, So you would think like, why do we need to have hand-pressed juices that are rotated out every five hours? We had watermelon juice that was freshly pressed every five hours, you know, brought out lemon juice, all of it. Yeah. And they would come out, dump it and put it in fresh. You know, so it was a different experience. Extravagant. A lot of learning. Yeah. Who was, like, who did you find to mentor you or who was kind of helping you, if anyone, at that time? Sure. So um, Tony Abaganum was the um, mixologist, beverage pro for the Bellagio. Um, He was hired on in 1998. And I'll never forget my first day at the Bellagio. We had two weeks training. We were given like, and I still I stole it. You're not you weren't supposed to do that, but I took it, and it was like our um, our recipe manual. And I'm like, I'm taking that home, right? <laughs> so I still have that, and it's 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 all sticky and yucky because I used it. But um, I'll never forget he had this like pep rally for a better name, with all the cocktail servers and all the bartenders. I think we had probably two hundred bartenders 150 bartenders maybe and at least twice that amount of cocktail servers so so there's a lot of us in this banquet room and I remember him getting up on stage and just giving us just this wonderful speech you know and Steve Wynn was there who was the owner of the hotel at the time and I looked at Diane Sylvie who still bartends there today and I said Diane I want to be him and so I started following Tony around and I'd bring him menus from like Bahama Breeze because that looked cool to me, right? They're making these cool like slushy drinks. Like, what do I know? Like, did yeah. you check this place out? <laughs> Have you seen this place, right? And um, eventually, he got he kind of, he took me under his wing. That's cool. Yeah. So is this the first? Were they one of the first casinos to take drinks seriously? They were the first casino in the world to take drinks seriously. Yeah, because I remember Paul McGee talked about working in Vegas, and he's like. There was no cocktail scene at all, Mm-mm. so that so it was Bellagio that started that. We were it, we were it, and it it became so popular so fast. Our drinks did that people were organizing their Vegas vacations to stay at the Bellagio so they could have a cable car. 
so they could have a Bellagio cocktail. And the amount of phone calls that we would get behind those bars was bananas from people that just visited us and wanted the recipes to our cocktail menu because no one had ever done it. Like they were doing um, some things in New York at that time, I believe, um, like at Milk and Honey maybe. Um, you know, some of the really, you know, smaller joints, but this was done on such a big scale. It was wild. Yeah, Rainbow Room came or, you know, was resurrected by Dale and all that stuff. And you guys kind of simultaneously. Yeah. It's crazy to imagine there were like a handful of places in the country that were doing real cocktails. Just a handful. And it wasn't, you know, and and I don't believe because, you know, there's always people that are real snotty about everything and say, well, it must have been nice to been part of the first. If you're the first, of course you can do it. Well, I don't believe that that's true because it takes a lot of energy. It takes some intelligence behind that. And you have to care about what you're doing. Yeah. And I think that there's a lot of luck involved as well. For sure. And you have to believe in it, which is a leap of faith considering there's no, no one has done it that way before. Ever. So it's, yeah, people take for granted that it's easy to believe in it now, seeing that it has been an established success. But at the time when you're like, are we doing the right thing? Are people right. going to care about this? And they did. And they yeah. cared a lot. And so the expectations were very high. And I remember um, I worked day shift from 10 to 6. And I and it didn't matter, by the way, what shift you worked in Vegas. That's just not a thing. If you had a following, you yeah. had a following and you would make some money. So that's not a thing. So I worked day shift, and I remember when Tony was on shift, we would like call each other and say, the eagle has landed, so everybody <laughs> polish your glasses, like, here he comes. Did he have very high standards for He everyone? had the highest standards, but in still the way that he is today, he's still my mentor today, he's still... Like my um, my big brother, I still I just talked to him yesterday. I talked to him all the time still, and he's still the same guy. So he would come in such a way that if you were in the weeds, which we frequently were, he would polish your glasses. Yeah, he'd you help know? you out. He would help, and he would he would be in the way. He'd be like, <laughs> "Don't touch my register. You don't know what you're doing there, buddy." But um, so how long before the other <clears throat> spots in Vegas started to pick up on this? Years. And- Really? So they kind of had, Blasio just had years a monopoly on yeah. craft one of, cocktails. One of the things that Paul said that was interesting to me, and, and I'm sorry because I obviously No, I love up, Paul. I mixed, we were there at the same time. No, I mixed, up, I mixed up your relationship with Tony and Francesco because because Paul was talking about the first class he took was a Francesco Lafayette And it was class. for me too. Okay. And Francesco so is still... I mixed still up a, a couple things. Sorry. I, I talked to Francesco um, a couple days ago as well, and he's like a brother to me. Even though I think we're the same age, he's like my annoying little brother. <laughs> I love him to pieces. I can say that you guys yeah. can't. But yeah, Francesco had um, was hired by Southern Glaciers Wine and it was uh, just Southern Wine and Spirits at that time. Yeah, and he was brought over from Italy, and um, he created a really wonderful course called the Academy of Spirits and Fine Service, which um, when I was hired. In 2005 at Southern Glaciers, took um, his material but created, put my own spin on it, let's yeah. say. I mean, and so much of it was you and your personality teaching us. I mean, it was it went far beyond, like, the curriculum was the blueprint, but obviously it was, like, yeah. the teaching, hands-on. We were learning about different spirits every class. And then did you create the second part of it? Yes. So... So when I, when Jamie and I, when we moved from Vegas to um, back home, I was living in my father-in-law's house in Joliet, Illinois, in a spare bedroom. My daughter's crib 
was pushed against the wall. I had to step on the bed to get to her, put it mm-hmm. into perspective. Didn't know what the hell we were going to do. We yeah. just knew we didn't want to raise a child in Vegas, right? So, And we had a good in Vegas, but we thought we need to come home where we have help. Okay, so having Paige was the catalyst to move back. Yes, having Paige. Um, so we came back, and I had in Vegas competed for the preliminaries for the United States for the Bacardi Martini Grand Prix in Turin, Italy. And I get a call. I have no job, no idea what's going on in my life. And that was the biggest competition at that time, right? In the world. The biggest competition in the world. So, But I'm like, I'll throw my name in the hat, whatever. I'm moving. They're not going to call me. Well, they call me. I won. Mm -hmm. I'm (laughs) I'm like, awesome. I don't have a job. I'm living in this you know, know, whatever, but I'll figure it (laughs) out. So we figured it out. My husband was working for his father at that time, making cabinets um, for a cabinet company. And um, I remember the USBG, United States Bartenders Guild, calling me and telling me, you won. We're going to send Tony Abaganum to you to put you through a boot camp and send you to Turin. And you'll be the first female to ever compete in this competition for the United States. I'm like, great. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. So Tony thinking that I lived in Chicago, either I, and I have to tell the both of you in my entire career, I, I, I've never said I live in Chicago because I don't, I live in the, I live in the sticks, you know? So I remember picking Tony up from the airport and he's like, where are we going? I'm like, to my (laughs) aunt's house who has a big kitchen in Wilmington, Illinois, which is even further South. He's like, oh, I thought we were going to this city. I love Chicago. I'm like, there's not even bars where we're going, dude. In this house, in the middle of a field, on a river. You and I are going to get to know each other even better. Yeah. And he, and it was great. And he put me through, um, a very rigorous boot camp for like three days. What, what and it was can intense. you give like a general outline, yeah. rough outline to what the boot camp was? Yeah, absolutely. So um, from what I remember, right, the the rules were very strict, and you had to have a white um, linen napkin where you would be working. That was kind of like your station, right? So you worked on this white linen napkin because you couldn't drip. And you get points off if you dripped. And you had to carry all of your stuff up, oh my God, up these horrible stairs in Turin, wherever the hell we were at, with your tray, with all your mise en place, right? Everything's on it, you know, to compete. And you're wearing this awful uniform that they had. It's like polyester red jacket and, you know, the scarf and, all, and it's hot. And so he recreated all this. And, there, and it's loud, so you'd put the music on really loud. It was hot in my aunt's house, and you know, just and she has a like a estate. It's a big home, and so you know, had me walking forever with this tray, which I, um, I can dance, not coordinated with the tray, not so much. <laughs> so I had to, you know, do that. Had to be able to make my cocktail, and in a certain amount of time, quickly. There, it is choreographed, so every single step, you know, from from the way that it's measured to when you put your ice in the tin. To, everything everything that they judge you on and i'm so grateful to him because i came second in the world and i was right behind japan which was incredible and i remember being in turin with jamie and they said my name and i just stood there and jamie, and they said it again and to come up on you know get my thing and he's like they called your name I'm like no they didn't <laughs> it's not possible <laughs> but they did. And, um, and I cried, of course. I got great pictures from that. And oh it was such God, a beautiful experience. But yeah. what, We'll use this for the throwbacks. Yeah, oh, yeah. it yeah. was crazy. And then, But then at that same day, the same 
day. So I was with Anastasia Miller and Jared Brown, who now you know them probably from Sipsmith, but back in the day they were really like journalists. So they were there, and that's the first time I met them, Hmm. was in Turin. And we were hanging out with them, and I remember I go, I've got to go back up to my room and call my mom and tell her what happened. And so I went up, and then we're going to go out to dinner with, with them. And I called my mom, and she goes, Southern Wine called you about a job? You need to call them. Your friend Francesco put you, she had this whole thing that she wrote down, right? And I'm like, oh my God, okay. So it was just like very serendipitous. Wow. And when I came home, um, I remember calling Francesco and I called Tony. And I said, because nowadays the, the term mixologist, like it's so overused and you don't have to earn it. And it's just, anybody can be one. When I grew up in the industry, it wasn't the case. These were my heroes that had that title. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just any Joe Schmo on the street, right? So I remember calling both Francesco and Tony and saying, um, can I do this job? Am I ready for this job? Because they wanted to have me interview to be a mixologist for the state of Illinois. And I revered it so much, I just wanted to make sure that I could you know, do it right. Yeah. And they said, absolutely. And they gave me the confidence to then interview so cool. But if they would have said no way, mm. I don't know what I'd be doing today. Yeah. Honest oh. to God. This episode of Joiners is brought to you by Stock Manufacturing, makers of fine hospitality workwear. You obsess over the details in your space, so why stop at your staff's uniforms? Stock has something for every aesthetic. From fine dining to a corner cafe, they've got you covered. Choose from in-stock ready-to-wear options or design the perfect custom uniform for your team. For more information, visit stockmfgco.com. How long until you are leading your own class? I mean, you take this job, is it like right away that you have your first class? Yes, it's like, holy moly, corporate America, what's happening? This is crazy. Um, I didn't, you know, it it was... it was overwhelming. And so within the first 90 days, I had to write um, a manual. And they hired an author to, I sat with her every single day, and we wrote the manual together. Um, and of course, using uh, what Francesco had as a template, but a lot of what Francesco was doing didn't really apply to where my heart was at in hospitality at that time. Yeah. Right? And so I wanted to put my own spin on things. And I remember Livio Laurel, who was the president of the United States Bartenders Guild at that time, and Tony flew out to help me um, start the USBG chapter, which again, you know, people like or they don't. I don't care. It helped me a lot in my career, especially early on. And um, within, I'd say, like five months, I launched the Academy of Spirits and Fine Service in Bolingbrook, Illinois, at our office. I remember one of my first students was Sonia Kassenbaum. You know, yeah, Sonia. From North Shore. From North Shore Gin. First craft distiller in Illinois. Yeah, and she was one of my first students in that class. But I I remember like taking cardboard boxes from the warehouse and making my own bar on um like on a table and just draping it <laughs> with stuff, whatever I could find to make like a back bar. Yeah. And we're just in like a GSM room. And I remember um, it's a general sales meeting room. General sales meeting room for those who are not in <laughs> yeah. corporate America. If you ever sure. have to attend one, I am sorry. Yeah. It's not fun. It's boring. So, but anyways, um, yeah, it was just cool. And I remember Mary Barranco, who is my 
uh, manager at the time, she said to me the day before, and I was all excited. She's like, what if no one shows up? (laughs) (laughs) You're like, wait, you didn't know if people didn't sign up yet or? No, I did. She was just was. I don't know what. <laughs> They'd sign up and just I just remember that show. really like popped my bubble. I'm like, crap. What if they don't? I'm in trouble. How many people were in the first class? I think in our first class, we had like 15. Okay. Yeah. And I mean, at this point, you can name some of your alumni. Of course I can. Debbie Peak was in that class. Uh, Joe Ariel, who worked at the local Moose Lodge. Whoa. And when I, when I would have him compete like years later in cocktail competitions in Chicago, remember 10 cane rum yeah. and he competed in that. And they're thinking like Moose Lodge, like what nightclub is that? He's like, no, like the local, like 140, <laughs> like in Joliet or wherever, <laughs> Illinois. But again, hospitality, people loved him. He had a huge following yeah. at the Moose Lodge. Yeah. So the class, um, I didn't think it needed to be elitist. I thought it should be open to anybody who wanted to learn, yeah, including our a- competitors. Yeah, that's yeah. true. That is crazy that other I distributors just sent there. Everyone and fought tooth and nail when I was creating the curriculum. I remember having to go to like some big wigs at Southern because I wanted to have beer and we didn't sell beer in Illinois and it was a big deal. I'm like, well, but if we're going to be 360 experience, you have to include beer. You have to. All bars have beer. You have to have, you know, someone. So yeah. mm-hmm. won that battle, was able to at least have one class on beer. And, yeah, I mean, when did the Advanced Culinary Mixology Academy come about, or how did that come about? So that came about because um, for my love of music's, music and concerts, um, my biggest passion in life is music, live music. And... I was, I had went, I can't remember who I saw. I, I really, I wish I could, but I had gone to some concerts, whatever. I think it was like 2007. I'm like, wouldn't it be cool? I was looking at one of my concert, on my concert tees, right? And you know, on, on the back, it has like all the dates of, and like all the cities that you've been to. And I'm like, wouldn't it be cool to go, like go on tour with a bunch of bartenders and a bunch of cities and countries, like a, you know, like a band. It was cool. Yeah. So... Um, and that took a lot of legal discussions and what would that look like? And so I thought, well, it should have an element of, um, skills like knife skills. It should have advanced learnings from other professionals in our industry. And we should go to some fun places around the world and learn from master distillers. And I was the first person to bring bartenders to distilleries out of the country. Now it's done all the time. So what does the tour? What? what did the tour look like? That first tour. The first tour was at Maker's Mark. Yep. In Kentucky, first person. Very cool. And Danny, you were there. Yes. Yep. Yep. And we took a bus. Yeah. And it was super fun, and we, you know, learned all about all the things at Maker Mart, Maker's Mark. Everybody got to dip something. Uh, I think someone dipped their shoes. Like it was just <laughs> like so great. In the red wax. In the red oh, wax. Yeah, and I, I always <laughs> I always had two rules, especially when I start taking people out of the country and they were um, do not throw up on me. <laughs> I, I don't care who and who you work for. I don't care. Your ass is gone. And I never uh, want to see you naked. Two rules. <laughs> if one of those things happen, I definitely yeah. don't combine the two. No, and don't ever combine the two. Like, I think one was almost broken. I feel one was almost broken by Dan de Oliveira. He can share <laughs> that story with you someday. I walked in and I'm like, nope. <laughs> well, yeah, was that first one we did makers and we did Mexico? We did tequila stuff, or we yeah, did we did tequila. We did. We went to tequila, Mexico, we went and to Edinburgh really, and Glenmo. We went for one to yep, and we went to Scotland. 
um, took folks to France. Um, I, I don't know, all, yeah. Poland, you name it, like all over the world. And it was really fun to approach the brands because no one had ever done this before besides taking an executive team and showing them this gazillion dollar experience at their distillery, right? Yeah. But to convince them why you should be taking bartenders, why this is important to your brand, why yeah. this is important to them who are learning about these categories. And when I would take them out of the country, especially to like a place like Poland, I'll use that as an example. We want to see how you're making everything, but most importantly, we want to learn about your culture and how that is integrated mm. and how that started in your culture. So like we, you know, I took bartenders to the salt mines in, uh, or not the salt mines, the, yeah, the salt mines in Poland. We went to Auschwitz. I mean, we did everything you can imagine and i didn't know what i was doing i am not a travel agent mm. um i just knew that boy you know they sent me to italy and if i can take folks out of the country that would be really cool because i know what that how that experience affected my life that is so cool so do the brands so you're you're pitching them you're like hey we've got a group of amazing mixologists we want to learn about your product and then is it you asking for a budget to bring them in for education? No, I'm not good with math. <laughs> so how, how did that work out? What was that relationship like? <laughs> Remember the time I told you I didn't almost didn't graduate high school? <laughs> oh, my God. If they, that would not have been cool. But here's 50 bucks. Great. Let's all go to Poland. I'm like, no, 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 no. Um, how that went was that I would approach through my relationships that I had, just mm. approach with my idea. I, did, I don't do PowerPoints unless somebody's made one for me, like, you know, kind of a thing. And I have my packets stapled and maybe go out to lunch and say, this is what I want to do. And these are the benefits to you. And these are the benefits to our community here. Yeah. And they all signed on. And then they were all waiting lists to do the next one. Yeah, I so, think people I mean, just are, trusted Bridget enough yeah, but are to they, support it. Are, are the distilleries paying yeah. your flight? Yeah, no, no, no. Well, so, it was like subsidized. I mean, yeah, you can explain. No, no, it. go ahead. I, I'm, I'm going to guess at it. How does it work for Geneva, like, Danny? Yeah, no, the brands like were able to work with, I think, Southern and kind of like subsidize the Like, we still paid into the trip yeah. as people going, but we didn't, it would have. If you're just like a random person, this trip would have cost a bunch more than what Oh, it cost tens it. of thousands of dollars. Yeah, yeah. And it might have been like $900 to yeah, do the very, whole thing. It was very affordable. And all that money was really used towards any incidentals or any um, educational things that I needed to purchase as yeah, we covered the trainer. Our flights as well. And then they'd cover their flights. Yeah. So maybe I wanted to get you all backpacks or we all needed... I have no idea. Whatever yeah. those incidentals mm. were, really, and we spent every penny of that. It yeah. was not, nobody made money off this no, program. No, it was really well run it, yeah. as well, and it was a really special. How long was did the trip length vary? Well, I was ambitious, so I would. It wasn't just one trip. Yeah, there were multiple trips in like a semester of this class. Yeah. Oh, I see. So, so you would have it like just depended on which itinerary you got. You signed yes. up for the class, and like this class, this advanced culinary mixology, this advanced mixology culinary yes. academy had a trip to Scotland in it, and a trip to Kentucky, or it would have had a trip to Poland, a trip to France. Like it just depended on what which one. Or you cognac, signed up for. Yeah, yeah, just really dependent on what, and and so it wasn't just let's go to cognac, France. No, we're going to also have like five or six professional classes before you even get there. Yeah. Wow. So I flew in uh, Jeffrey Morgenthaler, who at that time 
was um, accredited for creating the barrel age cocktail. And I was able to find, you know, some mini barrels and he came and we did this big class on how to barrel age your cocktail. I had yeah. Tobin Ellis come out and did a whole flare yeah. bartending class because I thought you should know everything. Yeah. If you just think you know how to twirl your spoon, guess what? The guy next to you is doing some really cool stuff behind the bar that he's entertaining his customers. You should understand this guy too. And yeah. You know, Charles Jolie would not abide by the flair. Education. He was in he that re- class. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was no, in that yeah, class. Charles went to all no, these classes. He, he respects all the. And he's friends with Tobin. Yeah. So yeah, he respected. But yeah, the hell Bridget out of brought in like Simon Ford when Simon was at yeah. Plymouth, building Plymouth into a you know a world. And Chris Patino. And yeah, Chris Patino. I mean, everyone. Mm-hmm. Bridget's relationships with the entire. So industry. crazy! It was like the first time that Ron Cooper ever spoke to bartenders in Chicago was at the Academy, and I remember Ron, you know, from Dalmagate. I remember him calling me. So I'm like, "Where are you?" Where are you? I'm, you know, class is going to start. He's like, man, I'm on Michigan Avenue. I drove. I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> you need to get here. <laughs> and then when I would have him back, um, I'm, there was one session that, and I would always invite an alumni to come back. You could just come back, but you'd have to get up in front of the class and t- say something about, not about your experience at the class, but like what's going on in your bar? Did you mm-hmm. find a cool trade magazine? let's let's really build a community and i remember so many people showed up that everybody was sitting on the floor like in on all the aisles and in the back of the room and yeah it was cool to come back it's really fun that's a very special community yeah we had a class at kendall college too like for the culinary Mm -hmm. side of it um and then this was before it moved to artesian yeah yeah i was actually at la cordon bleu Okay. Oh, Le Cordon yeah, Bleu. Le Sorry. Cordon Bleu. We My had bad. it there. No, we had it there, and I utilized the chefs there to teach like knife skills. Um, yeah, that was fun. Yeah. Danny, what are some stuff. skills you learned from Bridget that I mean, you countless. employ? We even did like the bar these days. Uh, we did canning stuff with like preserves. Yeah. Oh my, I forgot about that. Um, yeah, canning that, classes. Yeah, knife skills. Pretty holistic. Is a pretty, pretty good one. Mm-hmm. I mean. I remember Jeff coming in. I remember Tobin coming in and mm-hmm. getting into arguments with Tobin that were good, oh, good nature. Oh my but... God! Was that you <laughs> and <laughs> someone else? Who yeah. was it? Who he was, was arguing. It? it was about speed pouring and oh. not jiggering cocktails. Oh and stuff. my God! And uh, I, I was, you know, self righteous. I was on the the jiggering train, I guess. Mm-hmm. And Tobin was like, is you know, world renowned you know, flair bartender. Anyways, he came and visited me at the Whistler with DDO, I think that night to, to like kind of make sure that we were still cool. Yeah. And, uh, so yeah, it was, but yeah, wild experience. What's on the other side of the jigger argument, the auto pour. No, he's just saying that basically he was saying that he could be as accurate without jiggers as people who use jiggers. Oh, but who was it? Because for your final exam that year, I remember I told everybody just, um, I'll have a panel of judges and I just want to know what you learned from the experience. And I think it was you and someone else. Remember you wore suits. Was it you? I don't think it maybe. No, I don't think. Who I, was it? Yeah. could have been like a Dante. I don't know. Maybe. No, Dante sang a song. <laughs> oh yeah. He had the guitar. He wrote a song. Yeah. <laughs> maybe. And yeah, brought in backup know. singers and a percussionist. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think everybody got so creative. Extra credit. Somebody came in and they dressed in suits and I cannot remember who it was. Danny, was it Robbie Haynes? But what was it about? What was the presentation? About jiggering. Oh, why maybe. You should, and, why, and they had a debate. That's why I thought it was you. Oh, no, that does sound like And they brought a podium and, and like went after each other. Yeah. And I'm like, this is amazing. That's <laughs> cool. Someone wrote me. a poem. I mean, it was just like <laughs> the best. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, some good times. Is there a trip that stands out in your mind as most memorable? 
that's such a good, nobody's ever, I never talk about this stuff, actually. Um, I, no, I don't know that's most memorable because they were all firsts. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah. I mean, the, the, every single one of them were first for me, for the students, and for the industry. So I, there's not one that was better than the other. And I have to say, in all the years I did it, no one ever puked on me. I didn't see anybody <laughs> naked, and everybody was always on time. That was my other rule. If you're on time, you're out. If you are not on time, you are out. I don't, yeah. again, don't care who you are. For sure. That's I think you're good. Going, I, could, I could hit that one. You're going yeah. home because yeah. we, we have an itinerary to hit. Mm-hmm. And I was the only person there. And I, you know, I'd, sometimes I'd have 20 bartenders taking them around the world. Yeah. All right. Well, so soon we're going to go to the gratuity round. Um, but are there other things? I mean, you've written multiple books. Um, you're basically in charge of education for Beam Global. Well, I was. I was oh, recently sorry. promoted. Oh, which all right, is great. super fun. <laughs> Even better. <laughs> was, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I think in my career and someday, and, and I hope I get grandkids one day. I don't know that I will. My daughter's like, I don't want kids. And she's going to be 20, <laughs> so it's fine. But someday I would love to sit and share all the stories, you know, because they have a lot of them. Yeah. But it is the people that I have met that mean the most. And the people like, like you, you know, that um, still call on me today, which is uh, amazing to me. It, my career shocks me. It really does. I don't make millions of dollars. I'm probably one of the lesser known people in, in the industry. I'm not a Dale DeGroff. I'm not a Julie Reiner. You know, I did some fun things. But my wealth is within my relationships and the, the people that I've met. And, and I've had such a fun opportunity cheering people on from the sidelines for so many years. Like, I see so many people that would came to my class um, not knowing how to juice a lemon, you know, seriously, yeah. or how to squeeze a lime with a hand lime press. And now, you know, they're working for multi-million dollar companies as a brand ambassador or whatever every or creating their own programs and or opening their own bars and it just yeah, it makes me so proud in bridget's class oh really yeah andy and mandy mm-hmm. were in the first class yeah. that i took with bridget yeah so who who's typically in the class is it everyone do you ever get just people who want to learn Such just for their own question. knowledge well, the, the class is no longer in session um because i moved on um from my career since then but it really was um, anyone who wanted to learn. I It was a very inclusive space. It really was, I think, one of the first really inclusive spaces, meaning I would have bartenders there. I would have competitors taking our classes, right? I would yeah. take them with, I didn't care. I just wanted you to learn. You know, just because you don't sell a, some one of our products today doesn't mean you won't tomorrow. And But beyond that, you have to understand that the education that I was given in Vegas to people that I still look up to today was really the driving factor of everything. Like if I could just give that experience to anyone and see how very special that is. And that was the whole driving force behind everything. It definitely was not money or um, likes. They didn't even have Mike, can you imagine if they had Instagram back then or something? We would have gotten in trouble. Thank God they didn't have it. But so, it wasn't about all that. There was no influencers. It was right. just hard work and wanting to do good yeah. for others. On the topic of influencers, what do you think of celebrities with their own spirit companies now? Do you that, think that they're less 
dependent on education because they come with a with a built-in brand ambassador it, are they are they producing good spirits or is it just them throwing their and i'm sure it's a case-by-case situation but it what's, is a what's case-by-case case situation it really is you know some of them i don't think are doing a good job at all some of them i don't care that you're a celebrity but then some others that are making some delicious things like from the countries that they came from using botanicals you know from like what's his name like sam hewan for instance um from outlander he has a gin and he's actually using the botanicals um from his backyard in scotland like you know in the highland area so somebody like that and it's delicious good for you some others that you're you're not really even part of that community in the first place i don't understand yeah how about aviation and casamigos (laughs) <laughs> specifically I'm i don't think bridget yeah, go bridget there with you she's what do you want to yeah, say she's not allowed to speak on i'm not going to speak on that brands. but i'll tell you what i love ryan reynolds all of his things that he does to promote yeah. his stuff i think that he's hilarious he's a very yeah. clever dude very i funny. think he's super clever on yeah. how he promotes it and i think he genuinely likes his gin so yeah. wait so what's him. this promotion what's the new gig so again, it's this is like another like crazy thing. Um, my company actually created a job for me because I was ready to do something. Like, what can I do next? And yeah. I actually love to write. And um, so I am the senior um, director of external communications for my company. So that means I I write a lot. I get to write for um, trade magazines. What's really exciting to me is that I also am part of our new Leafform PR team, which is called Top Shelf. And so I work with, you know, smaller brands, a lot of like smaller brands that maybe can't always afford the big, you know, PR teams and help them with their cocktail strategies, help them. Uh, you know, are, are they at the right festivals? Are they doing the right things? Really being that consultant, which I find, again, almost brings me back to back in the day, really helping to shape and to mold and to use what I know. Yeah. You know, cool. without having to use math. So it's, <laughs> yeah, it's no math, great. math out of it. Hey, Danny. Yes, Tim. Question of the Bronca varieties. Is that all right? It's totally cool with me. They are one of our sponsors after all. Terrific. Okay. The sponsor is Bronca International. That is the company. Yes. Fernet. So what's Fernet then? Fernet is the style of Amaro that they originated in 1845. Okay. So that style, Fernet, is basically a mentholated punchier so it's like higher proof and it's a mintier version of amaro okay i get that it's a minty punch yep and it has since spawned many imitators got it and those also go by the name fernet but they're not fernet bronca right bronca is the name of the distillery fratelli bronca so it's fernet bronca i got it that's all okay can we get back to the show now yes sir all right sweet Tim, do you want to lead us off in the gratuity round here? Bridget, what's your death row meal? Spaghetti and meatballs with garlic bread made by my mother. Okay, mom's meatballs. Favorite hidden gem restaurant? Favorite hidden gem restaurant is actually in Joliet, Illinois. It, I think it's turning 100 this year, and it's called Marishka's, and they have the best cube steak poor boy you've ever had in your life, and they make it fresh every day. Hmm. That's a great tip. All right. I find myself down in Juliet every once in a while. I'll hit that up. What do you think is a sleeper spirit that is underappreciated? 
Oh, a sleeper spirit that's underappreciated. Nothing's underappreciated right now. How about like a sleeper cocktail, perhaps, or category? I love a mudslide, guys. I'm just going to yeah. go there right now today because it's hot out. And I think during the summertime, we always talk about those Miami vices and yeah. the daiquiri timeouts and all this, you know, cutesy stuff. Just go back. Try a mudslide. Put the Baileys and the Kahlua and all the shit in it and put it in a blender and smile. What is a mudslide? Not, not the TGIF has, like, bottled one. Why not? No. <laughs> you need to put some cream in there, some Baileys in there, some vodka in there, some Kahlua in there and blend it all up and it's delicious. Okay. It doesn't yeah. have to be sore. And ice Slush. cream, if you have it, even better. Yeah. All right. So on the topic of uh, dessert cocktails, do you have a favorite? The mudslide is my yeah. favorite. <laughs> no, no, I'm going to take that back. Grasshopper. Grandiel. Grasshopper. Okay. I love a good yeah. a bourbon O bar in New Orleans makes the best. Okay. All right. What is the most complex cocktail you've ever worked with as far as ingredients? Oh, oh boy. That might be a the good question for complex. Danny, too. Yeah, Danny, many, why don't you start? Because I need a minute to <laughs> yeah, think. Yeah, with the most touches. I have to think. I mean, the, the most, most touches. touches. <clears throat> well, there was. Um, there was a drink called, there is a drink called the Alamaguzlam, which is in uh, Ted High's book, Vintage Spirits mm-hmm. of Forgotten Cocktails. And <clears throat> Scofflaw used to do like um, a fan fiction night. So we do a menu based around like a cocktail book. And I remember just like getting this book. Everyone loved it um, at the time. It's a really great book. And basically there were so many recipes that we wanted to put on. But so we just, I started from the beginning and I really only got to like, I think the A's, like I remember doing an Avenues and an Alamaguzlam, but the Alamaguzlam mm-hmm. has like a lot of touches and it has egg white. And I just remember being like, it was just kind of a We'll pain. never put this on the menu. Yeah. It's like for a special night you could do it. And we, and we probably batched a lot of the, the spiritus ingredients together to save the touches, but it had like, it has like eight, eight or so yeah. ingredients. I don't know. That just comes to mind. I think for me, when I think back on, when I think back on my career for me in 1998, it was the mojito. No one had mojitos on their menus, period, amen, anywhere. And our guests would call it the mojito, you know. <laughs> and Tony Abaganam gave us, uh, and we laugh about this today, he gave us a chicken or like a meat mallet, you know, with like the, the round base on it to hand crush our ice, you know, in a Lewis mm. bag. And you're like 10 people deep. Nobody has time for this shit, right? <laughs> and you're handpicking your yeah, mint. That was a huge and you're hand squeezing the lime. And then you're putting this, all the stuff and then you stir it at the end. And for me... And my career was a nightmare. Yeah. The crushing of the ice. I remember doing that All a of little it. bit. Yeah. What's the difference between a mojito and a caparina? Cachaca? Cachaca. Well, cachaca, and there's no club soda either in the caparina. Okay. I was just, I knew. I just was making sure you did. Oh, yeah. I've been to Brazil. I actually studied, I studied, I studied cachaca in Brazil. Yeah. Did you do a, a trip there? I did. I did a trip there uh, um, with LeBlanc years ago and um, was there for 10 days. And wow. went to many cachaca um, distilleries and slept in a, co- what was it, like a, hmm, a place where they grew coffee beans, hmm. had a lot of mosquitoes. Um, it was amazing. All right, cool. Um, for an aspiring home cocktail maker, what books would you recommend? What are the must-reads for somebody who wants to take mixology serious at home? 
Bridget's books. No, not necessarily. <laughs> you can always get all my books. Yeah, of course. I mean, my, my latest one was uh, Life, Love, Happiness, and Cocktails. Um, I think any book by Jeffrey Morgenthaler is a really great one. He's yeah. got a lot of great, you know, mise en place tips in there. A lot of um, really easy cocktails as well to make. I love Tony's um, Vodka Distill book. There, I don't hate vodka like the rest of the planet, like a lot of the industry folks do. I don't typically drink it all the time because it, it's the one spirit. Like everybody has that one spirit that makes you a little nuts. That's mine. <laughs> but um, Danny, what's yours? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know. That's a good question. I'll get back to you. Cachaca is good. I'm in a Caprina. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, well, speaking of cocktail stuff, um, you talk about single malt being an aha moment for spirit yeah. education. Was there a cocktail moment, a cocktail aha moment for you? Yeah, for sure. The first time I made an old fashioned because... Um, what, which kind of old fashioned was it? I, I made the kind with a sugar cube and with Angostura bitters and with a muddler. And, um, and that's how we learned how to make an old fashioned. It was before how you make them today. Yeah. You know, and that was an aha moment for me. And that was at Growler's Pub. And they taught us how to make that. And that was years ago. And I thought, wow, you know, uh, this is really great. It's not coming off of a gun. Yeah. Um, it, it's quality. And, uh, and you have to use different skills to make it. And if you have to, like, impress someone with a cocktail today, which cocktail would you make? Anything with fresh juice. Okay. Like, really, like a margarita with fresh lime for someone that doesn't know, you know, like a Tommy's margarita will change their world. Yeah. It doesn't have to be complicated, right? It can be three ingredients. It's like, what? Yeah. Yeah. All right. What's your favorite fast food? We may have already touched on it. Well, we know one that saved your life. Well, Taco Bell, I did like back in the day. Now I can't eat it so much. <laughs> what was the order back in the day? Order back in the day was... Um, I love the Nacho Bel Grande. Oh, yeah. And what were, they don't have them anymore. They're, oh, what were they? They were only like maybe 75 cents at the time. Like Mexi Melts? Mexi Melts. That was my, I lived oh, on Mexi Melts. That was my thing. Oh, my as a God. Kid. Two huh. Mexi Melts. What's in a Mexi Melts? No sour cream what, in it. And no one knows what a Mexi Melts is. Sour cream in it was my dinner, honest to God, for like two years. Yeah, it was like ground beef, cheese, like a pico mm-hmm. de gallo, yep. basically, in a tight, oh, that tiny sounds pretty solid. Yeah, yeah. It, was it, so good. it was like 50 cents or 75 yeah. cents. I remember the and name. I, I never got them. them. Loved those. Mexi Melts were the we best. We have that in common. Yeah. Now, you know, if I need eat fast food, it's like a Portillo's cheeseburger. Yeah. It's a good order. It's not, nothing too Portillo's fancy. Portillo's solid. Yeah. Chocolate cake or chocolate shake? Chocolate cake shake at Portillo's. Oh, that's, that's an important so question. good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I like definitely the shake. Yeah. Danny? I guess I'd go with the shake. All right. I'm an ice cream guy. Yeah, me too. All right. Well, you already asked what's your favorite cocktail. Well, I think it's, yeah, it's important in the, the evolution. Yeah. Is there a cocktail, you know, is there a dealer's choice request you have for Danny? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so yeah, one of the things that we'll do is we're going to create a custom cocktail based on your preferences. Okay. So imagine you came in to scoff on us behind the bar. What's something that you might ask for? If you really wanted to challenge him. If I really wanted to <laughs> challenge you? Yeah. Oh, I don't want to challenge That's not Bridget's him. I know to, like, him. Fuck with someone. No, it's really not. Mm-mm. Well. But just something you'd be curious, like, hey. I'm into this right now, and I like these flavors. I mean, it sounds like some kind of fresh juice. Yeah, definitely fresh juice. Anything that's in season right now, like, um, I don't 
I've had some good watermelons lately, so okay. maybe something with like watermelon in it. Um, would love some rum that's not been aged, actually, because okay, cool. I don't think it belongs in a watermelon. And maybe something that finishes a little bit of bitter, but still has some sweetness to it outside of the watermelon. Cool. Mm. That's great. Very you got thorough. it, Danny? Yeah, I got it. All right. Cool. Uh, what unexpected trivia category would you dominate? I would dominate 80s hair bands. Okay. Beside obscure stuff. If I had the knowledge, I would test that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, To what do you attribute your success? Oh, um, I I mean, hard work. I don't have a magical answer for that because I don't, my success is in the people and maybe building relationships um, just for the fact that I want to see people do better versus trying to sell them something. Does that make sense? Yeah. And approaching folks the way that I want to be approached and always being myself. I think that that's really taking me through. I never tried to be anything else but me. That's it. What you see is what you get. And it's clearly worked. Uh, What is something that bars or restaurants do? Maybe we'll stick with bars for this one that might annoy you. A couple of things, a few things. Good. First of all, all if your menus are dirty, I'm leaving. Yeah. Dirty menus. If they're sticky or dirty and your bathrooms are dirty, I'm out. I'm out. Um, I do like to be acknowledged when I come to the bar. So if I'm with some friends and, you know, and if you haven't said hello to me and I understand when you're busy, it might, that might take a minute or two, you know, that, that will drive me absolutely, um, bananas. 100% bananas. And then also if I see a manager that is not being kind to their staff. I've seen that a lot in my career where I hear fingers snapping. Mm. I've heard that or whistling at someone. Mm. That should be a leader in that space. Whistling would be wild. I've heard that a lot in my career. You have to understand where I came up. That was common. And, you know, snapping your fingers at someone. Mm. All right. And then our last question. What is the best thing about Chicago's dining and bar scene? The people. The The people. The clients or the... No, the people creating it. (laughs) The clients, sure. But no, the the people that are creating the spaces are the best. We have the best. The Midwest is the best. The Chicago is all has always been about hospitality. It's always been about caring, caring, about uh, the person, either your neighbor or, you know, who's ever in your space. And I don't care if you're at a dive bar at some fancy bougie bar. Um, I think we have the best hospitality in the world is here in Chicago. And as a hospitality expert, is there a city that you've traveled to in the world that you feel delivers on hospitality uh, as well as Chicago or maybe even better than? Um, I'm not going to say better than because I don't think than anybody does better than we do. But I'm, yeah. I, I'm just saying that because I, I saw it yeah. from the start, right? Um, I think Paris does a wonderful job. Been to so many um, cocktail bars in, in Paris. Um, been to a lot of places in Italy that are absolutely um, fantastic. Went to some places in Finland that are mm. pretty cool. Um, I've been all over the world. I don't know. I think, oh, Poland, too. Poland. Yeah. Was, I've been to Poland quite a few times. And um, they love people. And they want to make sure that you're happy. Yeah, that's great. Mm-hmm. Well, Bridget, 
you're an inspiration. Thank you for being here. And uh, yeah, that's it. Thank you. This is a lot of fun. Oh, thanks, guys. Cheers to you both. And that concludes our episode with Bridget Albert. Special shout out to Amy Cavanaugh and Chicago Magazine for including Joiner's Pod in their latest best of issue. Thank you. Yeah, thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. And as always, please don't forget to like and subscribe. Check us out at Joiner's Pod on Instagram. We have some exclusive, interesting content on a weekly basis. We're talking reels. We're talking cocktail recipes, throwback photos, the works. Something for everyone. Something for everyone. This Uh, episode was produced by Matt Haddock, music by Captain Cuts, and video reels done by the one and only Joe Guzzo, the Guzmeister. Thanks for (laughs) listening. We'll see you next week.